podcast for the 900th time. Actually, it's been too long, probably, if you ask some of the, the listener base. It has been too long. Uh, I'm going to spare you the long intro. You know, if you don't know who Brian is at this point, like there's a 900 podcast where he goes over it. Um, tell us a little bit about maybe just like update me on what you've been up to. Anything different, anything new that you want to update me on? Uh, well, I'm in San Diego now. Um, yeah. I've been here for almost five weeks. So this is our kind of annual trip where we try to escape the the last bits of winter in Colorado and we come out to San Diego. So um, it's cool. We're actually wrapping up the trip. I only have two days left right now. And uh, overall, it was a little underwhelming, especially when you're trying to winter hop and go somewhere warm. Uh, California has been hit by just a ton of weird weather and it's probably averaged like low to mid fifties and rainy has been like our average day here. So, um, I guess pick your poison, you know, 26 and snowing or 52 and rainy. They're both pretty shitty. I am. It's so funny. That that's what you're doing. I am planning my summer hop from Texas. I am planning, um, yeah. Jenna and I are considering what we're going to do with our, our life in terms of where we're going to go and like kind of settle down and have a family. And we're not really sure it's going to be in Texas. It's uh, to be honest with you, it's just like too fucking hot. And I know that that's just like a weird thing to be a deal breaker but there are other reasons that's just one thing that I'm the first summer we were here it was like 95 on average and I was like oh it's not so bad it's crazy no big deal I could deal with this it's fine and it was super sunny and and, you know quality of life is awesome but this past summer it was like 105 on average and that was like way more normal people were like the first summer they were like oh it's so cold and I just didn't go outside I didn't want to you asked me what I wanted to do I just it's like being back in Jersey during the winter where you don't do outdoor activities for a while, it was the same thing just with the heat. And so whatever, I'm not, we haven't made any decisions yet, but I'm planning on like a, I'm starting to look up like a September, October, or maybe August, September, Airbnb in like Montana or something um, just to get away from that like 110 degree heat. Just like very exactly what you're doing, but on the, on the flip side of things. Yeah, you want like a, maybe a little bit more temperate climate where it's just kind of like decent the whole time. Hey, Boulder's not a bad place to be, dude. I mean, winters, winters, we have the whiplash. So some days you'll get like 65 and sunny right. and then it'll be 26 and snowing and, yep. you know, back to back days. But it's nice because you don't have to just settle in for the grind. You know, yep. like in Wisconsin, you know that like six months of the year, you're just inside. And, you know, in Austin, the three months of the year, you're just inside. And so yep. uh, it's nice to kind of have that whiplash effect. I'm with, I'm with you. We, we love Colorado. Colorado is definitely, definitely on the radar. Um, so we're going to be talking about, I'm, I actually was thinking about probably titling this podcast, just like meatheads doing cardio, just like um, I had uh, Dr. Alyssa Olenek on the podcast yesterday. If This podcast will probably come out exactly one week after that podcast. And so I highly recommend whatever we talk about today, there will be some overlap just for those people who don't go and listen to that one. But I highly recommend going to listen to that one. We went into some things that we'll go into today, but but whatever. I think it's important that, that people get kind of both uh, both podcasts under their belt. Um, but the thing I'd like to open with is just a little background, and I want to hear from you as well, so you can just kind of reflect back how you're feeling. But the reason that I am in a place now where like there's just a recent obsession with my own, you know, cardiovascular fitness and and the zone two stuff is that everything that I've felt passionate about teaching has been a reflection. I don't know how good or bad this is, but has there been a reflection, has been a reflection about what I've been really passionate about doing for myself, because what I felt passionate about doing for myself was something that I would dive super, super deep into learning more about and then feel passionate about talking about and then feel passionate about helping others with and going into my more adult life and, um, thinking about, you know, being a father and growing older and, and, and having put in, I will say there's a confounding variable of putting in the decade into like more specific hypertrophy work. Um, 
I'm definitely at a place where if you ask me what my goals are in terms of fitness, it's like to be as healthy as possible, to do the centenarian, to decathlon, all that stuff. And it, as much as I've preached and still, you know, would, would stand strongly by like, hey, if you are active generally, eat a balanced, nutritious diet that's calorie controlled enough that you maintain a healthy body weight and you lift weights and you have muscle, like you're covering a fuck ton of bases. I still stand by that. But I would say that it's become more and more obvious that that, if you were to imagine that on a pie chart, that there's a part of that pie chart in terms of your overall health that probably isn't hit with just walking, lifting, nutritious diet, don't have too much body fat, eat fruits and vegetables, all this, sleep enough. Like you can compile that all onto a pie chart for optimal health. And there's that sliver of specific dedicated cardiovascular fitness is something that I just haven't been addressing, I guess, whatever verb you would want to use. Um, and so that's definitely how I've come to this place of like talking about it more, doing it more. Is that, would you say there was a different impetus for you or is, what was what was the impetus for you? Yeah, it was similar. I actually, uh, mad props to you for already, you know, kind of feeling those sentiments at, what are you, early 30s? I'm 30, turning 32 in four days, actually. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Happy birthday. So early 30s, already thinking with so much foresight. So that's awesome. Um, for me, the story is a little bit different. Um I would say throughout my 30s, I still lived with that, call it invincible mindset that you have as a teenager and in your 20s, you know? I don't think that mindset fully left me until, honestly, like maybe a year ago. And so it was about a year ago, maybe a little more than a year that I realized, well, I, I uh, accepted that I was a mouth breather. Um I kind of was wanting to deny it in my head for like two decades. And eventually I was just like, you know what? This is a thing. I need to address this. Uh, and it started when I went for a walk one day and I was like, I'm just going to try walking and see if I can just breathe through my nose while I walk. And it was extremely challenging. Like I had to very much focus on it. And if I started walking too fast, I immediately wanted to start breathing through my mouth again. And so my first exploration into this started with just going for walks and trying to nasal breathe. And then I easily mastered that over a matter of weeks, a couple a month, whatever, whatever it was. Um, and so I just kind of stuck with that until, man, my 40th birthday in August, I, uh, a week before my 40th birthday, I read some of the book by uh, James, uh, I can't remember his last name, it's called Breathe. Um and he talked about mouth taping and how like 60% of males specifically uh, tend to mouth breathe at night and don't realize it. And I was like, wow, 60%, that is just a staggering number when you think about it. And um, I talked to a bunch of my friends and realized that they do too. And then I thought about all the time that I could be nasal breathing and not even have to like think about it or create uh, mental fortitude to do it if I just tape my mouth at night and start nasal breathing. Um, and then all of the implications on health effects that kind of you want to just do there. a quick touch on those because I think that's an interesting. I remember you were going through this mouth taping and trying to get back get into some nasal breathing. You want to talk a little bit about the potential benefits for that? Yeah, I mean it primarily is related to the purity of the oxygen that that you consume. And so when you breathe through your mouth, you don't have those little teeny hairs in your nose that kind of disseminate out a bunch of the carbon dioxide that we don't really want to be taking in and some of the like particles from the air and things like that, the dirt. Um, and so it just is a much cleaner experience and then it can more effectively get into your body and 
positively impact the mitochondria and like all the other things that we're going to get into with cardio. So, so it's very related to a lot of the stuff that we talk about with cardio for sure. And so it was on my 40th birthday in August that I finally decided to start mouth taping and I've done it every single night since, except for one night where I had the most absurd stuff nose and just was like, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> like I'm not going to be able I to I want to wake up tomorrow morning. Um, right. Exactly. Um, and so uh, when that started, you know, I tend to go full force into these things. And now that I had mastered nasal breathing while walking, I was like, well, obviously the next step is to nasal breathe while doing cardio. And so I started going for bike rides and nasal breathing. Um, and that all kind of got me into this space where I think in the around the fall, like right after my birthday, I started diving deep into the Peter Atia podcast podcast and his blog and, and all that stuff, as I know you have as well. And he's been a huge influence on my understanding of the importance of cardio as we age, because to kind of go back to something that you said, which was that you firmly believe that if you just lift weights, eat well, that you're checking most of the boxes. And, and I agree. I mean, especially if you add on eight to 12,000 steps a day or something along those lines. I mean, we're really, really getting like 98 plus percent of the longevity benefits that you could hope to get. Um, but I think you and I are very similar in our mind where we don't want just 98% of the benefits. Like we want to completely dive in and learn as much as we can. And then once you've learned all of this and taken it all in and you have this like entire new education base and knowledge, then you can kind of pull back and keep the things that you really find useful and beneficial. And so you and I both have gone like, all right, zone two, zone five, like all the cardio, you know, multiple times a week, testing lactate, like all the stuff we'll get into on the podcast today, but basically full force into this thing. And I have a feeling it's probably not going to be something that 40 years from now we're still on here doing like talking about our zone two and our zone five and our lactate and all this stuff, because it's just going to be background noise at that point. And it's just going to, we'll take what we want and move forward with it. Yeah. Definitely a, a person who knowingly goes fucking all in on something only to like recoil back to a place. I usually settle that I'm that I'm, and I'm good with that. I understand that's my personality. And so when I talk about lactate, like I always like, we'll talk about that today, but that's obviously like a ridiculous, <laughs> going to a ridiculous, unnecessary extreme with this. But I know that like six months, a year, two years of doing that, I'll have gathered enough knowledge that I can be like, all right, let me back out and let's be practical with this. And so let's do a quick, yeah. I don't want this to be like, just like me, like interviewing you. Like, let's do a quick brief overview of the zones. I'll let, I'm going to kick that to you and I will round it off if you, if I feel like you missed something. Um, mm -hmm. you can keep it super general. If you guys are looking for Again, I don't know how much of today will overlap with the podcast with uh, with Dr. Olenek, but um, if you are, whatever, if I would go listen to that as well if you feel like we missed something or if you want a deeper understanding of it. We'll do a little bit more broad stroke here. Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing to understand is that there's kind of two zone systems, and I didn't really realize this fully until I went and started exploring it a little bit deeper, but the cyclists use a one to six zone system and pretty much everyone else seems to use a one to five zone system. And so I use the one to five zone system, but it's important that if you were to Google zones and you were to end up on a cyclist page or something, and they're talking about zone two, that really isn't the same zone two that we're talking about. That's probably more akin to like a cyclist zone three. Um, so just as, you know, make sure we have the terms kind of straight there. Um, but zone one is going to be pretty much anything that is 
the effort of daily life, uh, gardening, walking around the house, taking the stairs, as long as you're not sprinting the stairs, um, just kind of living life, going for a walk outside. Um, I believe that the way I define it usually is, is zone one is pretty much anything up to about 60 or 65% of your maximum heart rate. And you can get a very general maximum heart rate by doing 220 minus your age. If you really want to know your maximum heart rate, just try one of the zone five workouts that we're going to talk about a little bit later. And that should pretty much tell you where your, uh, where your max heart rate is. Um, and it, so if we're assuming zone one is up to about 60 or 65% of max heart rate, zone two is going to be somewhere between 60 and 75% of max heart rate for most people. And we're going to focus a lot on zone two in this conversation today. So, uh, yeah, we'll delve into all of the subjective metrics about zone two as totally. we get going yep, through it. Yep, yep. Um, zone five is essentially, I'm going to skip three and four for a second. Zone five is essentially your maximum amount of effort over some given time frame. It really doesn't have to be like, I think a lot of people think zone five is like high intensity interval training where you're going 15, 20 seconds all out and then resting and recovering and doing it again. It doesn't have to be. Like if you do a protocol that's pretty popular for increasing the VO2 max, which is four minutes on, four minutes off, four minutes on, four minutes off type thing, you're working as hard as you possibly can for four minutes. And at the end of those four minutes, you're going to essentially have earned your rest. You will have done something worthy of resting. And so as long as those last 30 seconds of that four minutes is everything that you have to give, your heart rate is going to get up into uh, the zone five range. And so it's just exerting maximum effort. And then zone three and zone four, not that those zones don't matter or don't have applicability in performance and stuff like that, because they absolutely do. You have to train all the zones if you want to be the best performer. But if we're just looking for health, um, I think you would agree that we can achieve most of our health outcomes by focusing on zone one, zone two, and a little bit of zone five. Yep. I think other like very general broad stroke view to understand is just that understanding as the zones go up, it's a representation of exercise intensity going up. And so whether we're, we're going to talk about all the proxies, you, you even mentioned like estimated heart rate ranges for zone one and zone two, and then zone five is like all out effort over a given time frame. But just understanding that from zone one to zone two to zone three, four, five, that's a representation of exercise intensity going up for which we have both objective and subjective proxies to kind of break down to know where you are within those zones. And so it's just a one to five or one to six, depending on what, you know, kind of what, where you're getting your reference point from, but we're going to be talking about the five zone range. It's just a representation of an increase in the zone. It's an increase in exercise intensity. Um, and okay. Um, I think I would like to take a pit stop and just talk about walking for a second. Uh, uh, I think let's just say walking is zone one, just a leisurely walk. You go out for a walk. You're not, you don't got your heart rate strap on. You're not working up a sweat. You're not huffing and puffing. You're going for a walk. You're, quote, getting steps. I think, and you can, you know, we can jump in. You can bounce back and forth. But I would say that where does that play in terms of heart health? Um, it's it's certainly something that will help you sustain having a healthy heart. And it's absolutely important for a lot of processes in the body. But it's probably not hard enough where you're actively, for most people, uh, actively making adaptations. It's not stressful enough that it's causing some form of concrete adaptation within the body. There's so much good stuff that comes from walking, but I think we can all agree it's not very stressful and it's not very stressful. There's not a going to be a concomitant adaption that's going to happen. I mean, you're, you adapt to a stress and it's not very stressful. You're not really adapting a whole lot. And so 
that's kind of why we talk about zone two potentially being this like heart health sweet spot in terms of hard enough to cause a stress, but not so hard. And this is what Alyssa and I talked about a little bit. It's the unique part about zone two, and we're going to talk, uh, there's, I, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to talk about just like objective and subjective markers. But the one of the things I think it's important to understand about zone two is it's hard enough to cause adaptations, but it's low enough in intensity that you can do it for a very, very long time and not be limited by anything other than cardiovascular fitness eventually. And what I mean by that is if you're doing zone three, zone four, and zone five, there's just a higher percent chance of it not, being, you can't sustain those efforts long enough to get the same sort of long-term cardiovascular benefits. You have a higher chance of failing for another reason, whether that's like more muscular, things that are just more related to higher intensity training. Zone two is this thing that you could almost do in perpetuity. Like you could almost do it forever. And the fact that you can do it for so long and it is only stressing one, let us it's not only stressing one system. I don't want to be reductionist about it, but you're not going to, ever like get to a point of failure from zone two because your legs hurt or, and you, you have a, a different circumstance depending on modality. But for, for yeah. most people generally, this is something where you can really work on cardiovascular fitness without having to worry about failing for some muscular reason. Um, what do you think is, um, hmm, where should we go next? I think it would be important to discuss kind of the objective and subjective markers. But before we do that, like very generally, I asked this to Alyssa as well, but very generally, if someone's like, hey, what's the what's the actual outcome benefit of doing zone two? Why are we making a big stink about this? Would How would you, what would be your elevator pitch of like, all right, we're doing zone two for X health outcome? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the really kind of layman's answer is that it's going to improve your metabolic health and the way that your body can process the food that you eat. Um, that would be kind of the very, very simple way. And then I would quickly move it into, hey, the mitochondria are this thing, the the powerhouse of our body. They're, they, they control how our metabolism utilizes either the carbohydrates we eat or the fat that we eat to produce energy as ATP. And when we do this zone two work, we increase the number of mitochondria we have. We increase their, their ability to function and how flexible they are so that they can shift between using fat or using carbs slash glucose um, as their primary fuel source and metabolic flexibility is the pinnacle of health because it keeps us uh, disease-free, keeps us from becoming diabetic, makes sure we're insulin sensitive, um, and even helps obviously our, our lipid health, like cholesterol and things like that, through the body's ability to utilize these different uh, nutrients effectively. Yeah, and I, I love all of that. And I think my brain thinks like, all right, like how can we combine those two answers? It's almost like you're doing zone two, because zone two cardio is how you can, you said, get more mitochondria and better functioning mitochondria. And we know that not to sound like, I, whenever I say this, sounds like I'm fucking, it's like a Huberman clip or something. It's like, it's like mitochondrial dysfunction is like one of the hallmarks of, of metabolic disease, of most diseases. And if you want to live longer and be disease-free longer, then having healthy mitochondria is sure as shit up there at the top of the things you should be fo- focused on. And the thing that helps you have the healthiest mitochondria is probably a lot of zone two cardio. And so, yeah, like you said, mitochondrial biogenesis, better function. We get more of them. They function better, better metabolic flexibility, all that stuff. To me, it's like these mitochondria, we got to take care of them. 
when, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction or having poor functioning mitochondria is a hallmark of metabolic disease, a hallmark of most diseases, uh, most things that are going to, you know, most chronic diseases that are going to kill all of us at some point. And we want to take care of them. And the best way to take care of them is to do zone two cardio. Um, agree, disagree, counter. Thoughts? Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree all of that. Yeah. Cool. Let's um let's talk about uh just kind of why or what would be our I guess I'll kick it off. I think if we and I'll I'll throw to you how you use these, but I think if we are technically defining what zone two cardio is, you, a lot of people will use things like heart rate or RPE or like a talk test, right? And they'll kind of try and triangulate these subject subjective markers, which is again I think probably what's most realistic and what we'll talk about. But technically speaking. What zone two cardio is, is the point at which your body is burning the most fat at a level, at an intensity level where your body can still utilize fat because if you were to do more intense cardio or more intense work, right, do more work, your body would need a faster fuel source and it would switch over to using carbohydrates. So the question that you're asking, if you're really, I mean, you're not going to do this, but the real thing you're asking is what is the exercise intensity? at which I'm burning the, I'm, I'm oxidizing the most fat before I switch over into more of a glycolytic, more glycolysis, more carb-driven um, fuel source. And so what is the exercise intensity that gets me to the point where I'm oxidizing the most fat? And that is completely and utterly irrelevant from a body fat loss perspective. This like fat burning zone is a real thing and it is essentially zone two cardio. It just doesn't really have anything to do with body fat loss. It has to do with right. substrate utilization, the kind of utiliz- the, the substrate, the, the fuel source that you're using. We're not talking about body fat loss here. We're gonna talk a little bit about that, I think at some point, um, but really what you're doing is you're, you're trying to find, again, and the thing is like somebody might be like, okay, like how do I know how much fat I'm oxidizing? Like, Ironically, like nobody's going to go figure this out. You'd have to go into a lab, do an indirect calorimeter, put on the mask, put on the nose clip and kind of do this kind of breathing in and out where they can assess your overall like caloric burn per minute. And then there's an equation of like, okay, you're burning. Nobody's really doing that. The second potentially objective marker is keeping your lactate level below, let's say two, and we'll just put a two on it. And again, we talked about this a little bit in the last podcast, but your lactate is kind of a proxy for glucose utilization. And essentially what's happening is when you are burning carbohydrates, there's a byproduct. It is pyruvate. Did I just blank, black out pyruvate? Yes, I'm, I just blacked out. Um, no, no, lactate. It's lactate. Sorry, it's not pyruvate. Lactate. I'm, I blacked out for a second. When you burn carbohydrates, the byproduct of glycolysis is lactate. lactate. And so when you test your blood lactate, which something we will talk about, it is a proxy for how much carbohydrates you're burning. The more your lactate's going up, it's a proxy for, oh, because you're burning more carbohydrates. You burn more carbohydrates, more lactate is a uh, byproduct and it builds up in the blood. And so yeah. if you test your lactate and it's over a certain amount, that's indicative of you're burning more carbohydrates than you would want in zone two. And so again, in order to do that, you have to test your blood lactate in the midst of a cardio bout and see what's going on. And I will we'll talk about this more. I've been doing this for the last maybe 20 cardio sessions, um, and it is completely not practical for the average person. It's fun for complete nerds like us, but it's totally not practical for a number of reasons. But those are our our two objective factors. If you were a high-level athlete, high-level endurance athlete, cyclist, runner, you would be doing these things because the precision in which you'd get into zone two would be incredibly important. But they're probably not very practical. I would go as far as say definitely not practical. And so I'll throw it over to you to kind of talk about what are some of the subjective markers, proxies mm-hmm. of being in zone two, and how can we 
the average person triangulate those to get themselves as close as reasonably as possible without getting overly neurotic about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, real quick, just to clarify one thing, just in case the, the listeners are slightly lost, is that when you walk, you actually are burning more fat or you're burning the most percentage of fat. And when you're sitting down, you're actually burning even more percentage of fat than when you're walking. So when Jordan talks about you're burning the most fat, what he means is the most fat before your body shifts to carbohydrates. So he, he kind of said that, but just to kind of show the the alignment of how the fat burning occurs, like there's actually more fat burning at rest. Um, and, and when you are in zone two, there is going to be some carbohydrate utilization. It's just a point before it switches there. Can and I so just, to kind of I just pause real quick? Actually, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Cause you're spot on. They totally missed the point here. Is that like we said from zone one to zone five is it is an increase in exercise intensity and the more intense your exercise, the more likely your body will switch to carbohydrate burning. I know that that's not wholly contextual and nuanced, but when you're working at lower intensities, your body can utilize more fat for fuel. It doesn't need the faster fuel source of carbohydrates. And as you work more intensely and more intensely, at some point, use, utilizing fat is not a sustain. It's it's not going to do the trick for the intensity level that you're at. And your body says, okay. I'm not gonna use as much fat now. I need to switch over to carbohydrate burning. So over the course of between zone two and zone three is kind of this tipping point. FT, your, your uh, functional or VT, VT1 or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where that's that, that point where you're training at such a high intensity, your body says, I can't use fat anymore. I need to switch over. So I appreciate that, that pit stop yeah. for sure. Yeah, for sure. And so when we kind of get into the subjective markers here with that idea that, there's a point and we're trying to essentially ride up as close as we can to that point to the ledge without actually falling over the ledge. You can kind of think about like if you're on a bike or whatever sort of device that you're using, there's a certain amount of say discomfort that you can sustain and, and you can feel in the moment that, Hey, this is slightly uncomfortable, but it's not getting worse. It's just every 10 minutes. It's just the same initial level of discomfort that I had 10 minutes prior. And so by doing that, you are teetering right up on that edge. If you then reach a point where you're like, you know what, I think I can handle a little bit more. And say you increase your RPMs like five, like just this teeny little increase in RPMs. But now you feel that your legs are actually starting to fatigue more minute to minute or every 10 minutes to every 10 minutes. And you're actually experiencing increasing fatigue then now we've teetered over that edge. And so it really is this process of almost being infinitely sustainable. And if you reach a point where it's not infinitely sustainable, then you've gone too far type thing. Um, so the first subjective metric that I use with people is not heart rate based or anything like that. It is more RPE. And it's, hey, do you think you could sustain this for three hours, two to three hours? We're not going to work out for two to three hours, but you know that at the hour point, you're like, yeah, I could still go for another hour, that type of thing, right? Um, and so that's subjective marker number one. Um, subjective marker number two would be a semi-stressed conversation. And initially I said, I, I'd say semi-stressed, and then I, I didn't expand on that. And I realized that there are people out there that, can be in zone three and zone four having a conversation and be like, yeah, that was semi-stressed. Um, so it's very ambiguous. 
And I now kind of walk this back and I say a conversation that is barely stressed. Like you and I could be having this this podcast right now and talking. Which we talk about you, doing. In zo- yeah, both, exactly. Both like we should a, just do it yeah, on a bike yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, to like show what it sounds like yeah. when we're in zone two. Um, so like there would be an occasional word where there's like a type thing, but there's not like every word is 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 difficult to get out or that you can't speak in complete sentences or, or anything along those lines. Um, so that's a great subjective marker too. If you want to start getting into the heart rate stuff, since most people have smartwatches or chest straps these days, um, the idea of 180 minus your age. So initially we said 220 minus age for max heart rate. If you take 180 minus your age, I think that works if you're in pretty good cardiovascular shape. Um, what I've noticed since prescribing that is that most people I'm prescribing it to have to start about 10 beats per minute lower than 180 minus your age. You're nodding. You've had a similar experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I almost want so, to rec- yeah. change my recommendation to 170 minus your age because I'd rather, I almost like, I, not only would I bet that that's more accurate for most people uh, who are not cardio enthusiasts, but I also would, the fact that this is just, it's like setting your calories and you're starting a deficit and you're like, hey, I'm just going to not go that low right out of the gate, which is not a blanket recommendation, but the idea that you'd be like, I won't go that low. I'll see how it goes. I'll lower it if I have to. And it's the same yeah. with this. And I'll raise it if I need to. Yeah. yeah, it's the same thing with this where I'm like, hey, do 170 minus your age. And then let's talk about it. Let's see what happens five sessions in. Let's start there, triangulate with, I love that you had said at the hour mark. And let me know if you kind of agree. I've been starting to say to people like, your zone two should be over more so from boredom than fatigue. It's like, I yeah, get off yeah. my zone two because I want to get off and go do something else. Not because I'm like, yeah. my legs are dying or my heart rate's dying or my my respiratory rate is through the roof. I want to get off my zone too because I'm bored. And that, 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 pure monotony. Yeah, pure yeah. monotony. And so, yeah, so I've experienced a very similar thing with the heart rate. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll just start using 170 minus age either because before I've been saying 180 minus age and then discount it 10 beats per minute if you're not in great cardiovascular shape. But nobody really wants to admit that they're not in great cardiovascular shape. Everyone's just like, yeah, I, I work out. I'm cool, which was the same as me. Like, I, do, I don't do cardio, but I'm like, yeah, I walk. I'm lean. I have low body fat. Like, yeah, 180 minus age, you know? Well, the first time 180 minus age put me in a hole. Same. Um, Rocked. Yeah. So so I went back. I dialed it back to started at essentially 170 minus age and then, and then worked my way back up from there. Um, so I like that one. Um, am I missing any, what else, uh, what else am I missing on subjective? I think that's pretty close. Yeah. The four I have written down is RPE talk test, heart rate estimates. And then Alyssa brought up one that she uses, which is like a a subjective focus level. And it's almost like, um, when you're, you're out there for a run or you're out there for a hard bike, it's like, you can, it's like you're focused on every step you make. You're like, you're in the zone and you're really like, you get sort of like a tunnel vision feeling where you're like Mm -hmm. really in, it's almost like meditative where you're like really in the moment feeling every step that should not happen in zone two, right? Zone two should Mm -hmm. be like more of a feeling of like looking around at the the environment and like people watching and it shouldn't be this like in the zone focusing on every step, which, which I'll, 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 uh, I'll say is actually one that I, I haven't done a, a session since then, but I want to see how that feels. Cause that makes sense to me that I would, that, uh, that I'd be more of like this, like, you know, ADHD, like looking around instead of like fucking dialed in focused on what yeah. every single step I'm making. The thing I, I want to get your opinion on this. So 
I I have a Garmin and, and I have no shame. It's a ridiculously expensive watch and it is, it's gotta be the best of the best. There's just no way you could ever pay more for, and it's so unnecessary. There's no reason I have this watch, no actual reason. Uh, I got it because I was like in real hiking mode and it has like GPS and all this stuff. It's totally wildly unnecessary. My point of saying that is that even this feels like we're already dealing with one layer of estimation and uncertainty, subjectivity with heart rate. Like there's people's heart rates come in all different shapes and sizes based on genetics and based on level of fitness, age. And so there's already a big air of ballparking it with that. And then I, and then you put on your like your Fitbit or your, your or Apple Watch and it's you know it's loose on your wrist and it's not really the most accurate. And so now we have a second layer and they 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 multiply where I have like a ball I was first ballparking it and then the number I'm using to 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 triangulate that number is also ballparking because it's not the best at reading heart rate. And so uh I I'm I'm hesitant to use that I'm hev- I'm hesitant to lean as heavily on heart rate for people that don't have a chest strap. If you have a mm-hmm. chest strap, heart rate bumps up in its utilization, in my opinion. And if you don't have a chest strap, it's not that we're not using it. I still want you to, I still want it to be, you start the workout. I still want to see the graph afterwards. I still want to track that data, but I'm just going to look elsewhere. I'm just going to change how I'm ranking those subjective markers. Um, just from having done it with my Garmin and then switching over to the Polar chest strap, which by the way, is not it's not expensive. It's not annoying. And it is actually measuring your actual heart rate, your actual beats, uh, whereas the technology from the wearable is just something different that's a little bit less accurate. Um, In my opinion, if you don't have a chest strap, I'm not saying you can't use the heart rate. I'm just saying, listen to the other stuff we're talking about. And if you are caught between the heart rate and these other subjective markers, I might just lean in that direction. And so um, would you agree with that? Yeah, what, um, how big was the discrepancy between your chest strap and your Garmin? It was like eight, it was like eight beats per minute. And it's just not crazy, by the way, not crazy, but it's like layered on top of an already ballparked, uh, right. heart rate, right. the number. Um, yeah. And it wasn't crazy. It's not terrible. And, and if you have an Apple watch, we're still using it. The other thing I want to yeah. ask you about is the talk test. I'm such a fucking like, I, 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 the reason, there's a reason I have a lactate meter. It's because the subjective gets me in my head. Um, and so I heard all of this, you know, I listened to the Tia podcast. I've listened to guys like Alex Viata and and Dr. Alyssa Lenick and talking about all these people and talking about the talk test. And, you know, generally what is said is, can you say a 10 to 15 word sentence without gasping for breath in the middle? It's okay to breathe deeper but it's not okay to gasp. And then the second thing is what you said is like a very low stressed conversation. Um, to me, like I get that. And even people like Inigo, who is on, who's like one of the foremost like researchers and uh, uh, people who apply this information, rarely rarely does anything more uh, objective than a talk test. He's like lean, he loves the talk test, totally on board with that. Like yeah. test your conversation. Can you have a conversation? And to me, I'm, I'm unable to know because I watch... There are some people that do Q&As while they're in zone two. It's like their thing. I don't know if you follow a guy, Alex Viata, and he's like, hey, all my Q&As mm-hmm. I do in, in zone two. I watch his zone okay. two. He talks to the camera. There's no way I could sound like him. I am more stressed out than he is. Um, but all of my markers are in the right place and all of the, even the lactate and the the heart rate and my focus level and the RPE, it all feels, and my, mm-hmm. my, my like subconscious, like, could I sustain this forever? It's all checking off. And then I watch somebody else in zone two and I'm like, I, I, 
I'll tell you right now, I'll shut up for a second, is that it, there's also a confounding variable for me that I guess neither of us can answer, but I'm going to try and get an answer to this is when I, let's say, you know, in you go and some of these guys who talk about this would say, I can do a Zoom call in zone two. That's fair. And so what I've been doing is I'll call my fiance and, and I'll just like call her for five minutes. If she's at work, I'm like, let's talk for five minutes. Let me just see how this feels. Without, without question, when I do that, my heart rate goes up by 10 beats. And, mm. and so there's this confounding variable of like, I could do this, but I'm more tired now doing it. Um, and so that mm-hmm. was, so I've backed off since then and I'm trying to bring it down to a point where I could legitimately do a Zoom call. And I think one of the things that people say that I think makes sense is you could do the Zoom call on in zone two. You, you probably wouldn't love it. And the person on the other end would know that you're exercising. And so have you found solace? Have you found comfort in the talk test or has it made a little bit more confusing for you? Because I've, I've tried to explain it to clients and, and, I, and I admit that my, not skepticism, but my own uncertainty comes through in my kind of explanation of what this should sound like. Cause I'm, I'm not real. I want somebody to stand with me and be like, yeah, you're, this is what you're breathing. You're good. And like, I just yeah. don't know, you know? Yeah. The Alex Viata thing that you mentioned is very interesting. I feel like I want to go watch that now because I know that if I was talking in what I do as zone two, it would kind of probably be more like what you were hinting at, which is it's going to sound more stressed than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so he's definitely using the, the, the one through five zone system as well. You think it's a good, it's a good question. He is. And, 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 yeah. and I'm, and I'm actually not positive. Sometimes he, you can only see his face. It's funny. I'm, 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 I'm going to be talking with him pretty soon, but, um, I don't like, I think he, he says I'm always in zone two, but like, I can't see him cycling. And so I'm like, are you even, right. are you sure you're doing something? Like I'm not, I can't, <laughs> right, not positive. Like he could be doing nothing. He could be doing like, nothing. Like, it's unclear. There, yeah. My point is it should be more yeah, yeah. clear that you are a little It should stressed. be more clear. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Okay. Yeah. I agree that it should be more clear. That to me sounds like, you know, what you would expect from me going out for like a walk at like a 3.3 mile pace outside or something like that. You know, yeah. Yeah. um, when I'm in zone two, I don't believe that I could do more than a 10 or 15 word sentence. Like you said, like that's probably about the limit of what I would get before I'd be like, Hey, I need a break. I need to gather myself, take a few breaths. And it makes sense what you were saying about heart rate going up when you're, when you're talking. And I've noticed this even like when I'm out biking with my son and this is very much not zone two, it's, it's very zone one. Cause my heart rate is like 83, you know, 92, shit, something yeah. like that. Um, I mean, he's five, like he, he can't bike very fast, but, um, we'll be having conversations on the bike and I'll take a glance at my watch and I'll realize when we're in conversation, my heart rate does go up from 83 to 93 or 93 to 103 or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I think that that is an interesting point that you make and kind of then again, like I, I would love to talk to Atia about this. Me too. There's so many questions I have for I him, but like we'll never get him on our podcast. He lives in Austin, <laughs> so I feel like there's some way yeah. I can show up at the door and be like, "We're podcasting." Like, you need to go rocking with him one day. Oh, I'd love to. I, I'm thinking. <laughs> wow, that's funny that you mentioned that. It's literally on my list of things to talk about. Let's 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 pivot a little bit. We have these subjective markers. In my opinion, I think it's about communicating a couple of them to clients, and and then getting them to understand them. And then in my opinion, it would be trying, try and triangulate them based on your just subjective feeling of how hard this is. See if you can even maintain a rough conversation or do a 10 to 15 minute sentence or 10 to 15 word sentence, um, get a heart rate estimate. And if you're on the fence, I would fall on the easier side. Like that's just like generally what I've been feeling. It's like, if you're not sure, you're like, my heart rate's on the fence. 
my talk test is on the fence, my RPE estimation is on the fence, I would maybe, in, in for most people, I think that we, and Alyssa brought up something really interesting, is like, there when people lift, they underestimate what they're capable of, like most people. When people do cardio, I think they overcook it. I think that that's something yeah. that's so interesting, and I and I have a I have a hypothesis as to why that is, but I think that that's something I'm seeing a lot. Where I watch a form video, and I'm like, you could do more, and I watch your cardio, you know, kind of subjective markers, like, and, all stuff, and I'm like, yeah. you could do less. Um, yeah. And and I think that there's a hypothesis as to why that is, but I find that to be interesting. And, and so I usually will be like, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try and triangulate these three things. But if in doubt, let's do less. Is that a similar? You'd mm-hmm. have a similar approach. I actually, yeah, I fully agree completely. And I'll also caution as well, something I've noted about zone two work, because I do a lot of it outside on my bike. And when I'm hanging out in zone two, it feels a certain level of easy. And I can maintain that, you know, perpetually or whatever. And then I go up a hill and there's like one minute or 30 seconds where my heart rate goes into the 150s or 160s, just like super briefly and then it comes back down into zone two, that zone two after the heart rate spike is way more challenging for the rest of the ride than it was before the heart rate spike. And so it's because I I, I went past the point of sustainability and now there's lactate accumulating in my body. And just because I got my heart rate back down to zone two doesn't mean that I'm not now on this runaway train of sorts. Something and else. so that Go would ahead. be one caution I, I put out there for people. Yeah. Alyssa made a good point because we had talked about this idea of like, hey, I go out for a, a two hour ride and the net that my watch says is I net spent 45 minutes in zone two. Is that the same as getting on the treadmill and doing a very steady state zone two? It's not the same, which I think we both understand. And the reason it's not the same is because as you have these bouts of high intensity, you switch over to more carbohydrate burning. The byproduct is lactate. And having lactate in the blood blunts fat oxidation. And so having lactate in the blood blunts your ability to burn fat. And so if you have this bout of intense exercise and you push lactate, you know, whatever, you put, you're pushing, pushing glycolysis, you have more lactate in the blood. Then after that, then you switch back to what your heart rate would assume is zone two. You will, for a time being, have less ability to burn fat. You'll still be burning a higher percentage of carbohydrate. The thing that she mentioned, though, is that it depends... That doesn't mean that it becomes useless, and I think we would both agree with that, but it is interesting that it's only that way for as long as it takes for your body to clear that lactate. And so mm-hmm. if you were, if you had like 20 minutes of zone two and then about of like three minutes of hard training and then another half hour, maybe it took you five or 10 minutes, 15 minutes to clear that lactate. I don't have the metrics on that, but if and when you clear that lactate, you'd go back to- You're back into zone So it's two. not like yeah. it's all fucked after you have this bout of high intensity. It's just not exactly the same. You can't really do a two-hour bike ride with hills and wind and stoplights and think that it's going to be the same. It's not, but it's probably right. not all, like it's not like those all net, those 45 net minutes, none of them are real. They are, but- It's like 30 of them are. Yeah, some of, of it is. But she made a good like point because yeah. I was, I forgot about like, well, you'd clear that lactate over after a period of time and go back to burning yeah. fat. And so- that part is cool. I want to talk a little bit about both of us are very hypertrophy driven. Like that's like where our, our, our like heart is or has been recently. And one of the things I find a ton of comfort in a couple of things I want to talk about. I want to make sure we just get these things on the docket. I want to talk about what we're going to talk about right now. I want to talk about different modalities and I want to talk about how to know you're improving over time and how you kind of 
might articulate this idea of progressive overload for cardio. So we're going to get to those things. Um, of course I did that. And then I forgot what I was going to ask. Oh, now I got it. Is that for those people listening, it's like my, mostly my listeners and probably yours too are very driven to get resistance training adaptations. And the more intense your training is, the more overlap with that training that that cardio is. And so if yeah. you're doing um, like so what I'm getting, I'll just shut the fuck up and say it, is that zone two overlaps very little with your resistance training adaptations, which is why it's, it, we would use the word complementary. It's very complementary to your lifting. It's the exercise intensity where I would absolutely, I'd go as far as to say you should have no issue outside of just general overall fatigue levels of which zone two is very little. It's not fatiguing at all, basically. Um, I wouldn't really feel like, oh, you're adding zone two. I got to really think about your overall work that you're doing across the week. Right. Or I really got to think about your recovery capacity. It's when somebody tells me they're going to add a hit training or an orange theory or a CrossFit or a, you know, whatever, where I'm now thinking, okay, that's sucking a, that's a big recovery suck where I really need to think about your overall recovery. But what's great about zone two is like people like us who are like, I want to look muscular. I want to be strong. I want resistance training adaptations. I could do, you know, somewhat of an unlimited amount of zone two without feeling like I'm going to risk that. Is that a feeling that you have as well? Yeah, totally. And we've actually been butting up against this right now because uh, at Paragon, our new menu that we're dropping of different programs and stuff, it starts on April 10th. And we're including optional add-in cardio um, that you can basically like add to your calendar through Train Heroic or whatever. But um, in that optional add-on, it's essentially two zone two sessions and one zone five that you can just add into your week. And we've always had this messaging in our in our program that you want two rest days a week. Like, hey, you can train five days a week. So if you're doing a three-day program that gives you like two cardio days or two CrossFit days, and then, you know, three days of, of weight training, whatever it is, you know, two rest days. And so now as we have this new menu and these cardio add-ons, it's it's making whole this idea of of whether zone two is a workout or whether zone two is a rest day. And the way that I have been trying to message this is that zone five is a workout. That is a hundred percent a workout. So if you're following a four day a week program and then you're doing a zone five session on a different day, you're now working out five days that week, but you can put your zone two sessions in on a rest day. And if you're actually doing zone two properly and you're not letting your heart rate spike and drop and spike and drop type thing, um, that it should be if not a net neutral, it should be restorative. Like, like I think it, it should help your recovery across the board, whether it's recovering between individual sets faster or on the grander scale, just recovering between sessions faster because your mitochondria are more efficient and more effective. Yep. I agree. I think that that's a, that's an interesting, that I have not come up with that yet just because my group hasn't introduced these optional days, but I think if not this mezzo, just because wedding and 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 honeymoon and shit, I'm just trying to make sure that I get it out and ready. But I think that very soon, if you're listening to this and you're my group, very soon there will be two zone two cardio optional days that are that are programmed within Train Heroic with instructions and all that stuff. That's totally coming. Um, don't put, don't be dropping your fucking Paragon shit here. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sorry, bro. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, what I was gonna say is that you're right. Is it is it a rest day or not? And my answer would be like. The semantics are to, to how you would define a rest day. It's not a workout if you do it right. 
It's not a training day if you do it right. And if your zone two is really zone three, it's fucking, it's really messing yeah. with, or it's really counting as a workout. Let's just start there. Um, yeah. And yeah, if it's a real zone two, and I've experienced that a ton by just adding in, let's say two zone twos, and that's where we're going to move to now, which is like how we're, how you've been organizing this. Uh, but I've incorporated two zone two days with, like you said, the irony is not only is it not adding to fatigue, it is an it is an adaptation that's directly reducing on all time scales time to recover um, from from intra set or let's say between sets to between exercises to between workouts to um, how have you been I, ha- I want to circle back to a question but I, let's for, I'll I'll make a note so I don't forget but how have you been incorporating this as a person who's interested in hypertrophy and how might you go about talking about duration and frequency for people within our our space who are like I want this for health. I'm not worried so much about optimal performance. Cardiovascular. Yeah. Uh, well, because zone five does count as a workout, um, my split now for for myself is is five training days of of weightlifting over nine calendar days, which leaves me four kind of open days, so to speak. Uh, one of those open days, I'll generally do a zone five, um, and then you know the zone two stuff. I program two sessions across that nine day period, but oftentimes I try to get three. Um, and I find it completely non-issue to do on the same day as weight training. Uh, I've, I've experimented with doing it on leg days, both before and after, just because I like data and I, I like to, to figure it out. Uh, I can't say that I saw a performance decrement by doing cardio before training, but it was much more mentally exhausting. And I think that, you know, a lot of times people uh, undermine the importance of psychology in in their training. You and I have discussed psychology a ton, but um, even if doing your cardio before your weights doesn't impact your performance, I think you only have so much bandwidth of optimal focus that you can put into something before you just become exhausted. Um, and so I, I, for that reason, even more than others, I really am not a huge fan of doing the zone two work before weight training. Um, I'll do it after weight training quite often. Like I'll, I'll, you know, very casually bike to the gym, call it zone one, and then I'll do my workout and I'll do a longer bike ride right after in zone two. Um, and so that works fine, especially on upper body days. It's a little, it's actually much more inefficient if you try to do it on leg days just because you already have that lactic acid accumulation in your legs so it just accumulates even faster once you get into the cardio it's kind of hard to get back to that fat burning zone um but i i've become much less much less restrictive on where i place zone two work and so uh, after an upper body day totally fine um on a rest day 24 hours before a leg day totally fine um Really no qualms with any of that. And I've even experimented with slamming together a zone two session and then resting 10 or 15 minutes and doing a zone five session. And that actually is phenomenal. I mean, if you're going to make a training day, like a cardio day, and you're not going to combine weights and cardio, slamming those two together is super efficient. In that order. And in that order, of course. Yeah, yeah, you can't go zone five and then your lactate's like all off the board trying to go into zone two. But yeah, zone two for 45 to 60 minutes recover for 10 or 15 and then you're basically already warm because part of the the problem with zone five is that you have to warm up yep. for like 20 yep. minutes yep. just to get your heart rate ready to go into zone five 
Um, and if you've already done that with zone two, then you skip 20 minutes of time that you would have to commit otherwise. And so um, I personally love that idea of combining the zone two and then the zone five in the same session. How about you? That that combining zone two and zone five has been like at the end of the day, what we're what we're talking about is we have two two things, two buckets. We're looking at like what sort of arrangements are best for managing recovery and performance and adaptations. And then we have another like practical, logistical, time constraint, best practices. And so I think that uh, some of them check both boxes, like doing your zone two and then zone five is like time-wise, incredibly practical. You're like, I'm already on the treadmill. Already, I'm already warmed up. I can do X amount of zone five bouts here and I can get some of those adaptations. And physiologically, I'm doing it in an order that, doesn't violate my ability to get the maximum benefit or a lot of benefit from both of them, which is great. I have not done that yet, but the the thing with me is like, I'm usually just so bored. Actually, right now it's a little different, but I'm usually so like, not so bored, but I'm like, I'm over yeah. it after the zone two. And, and I think if you are already lifting, you're listening to us talk and you hear that we're talking about doing some zone five work and some zone two work, I would, I would personally more highly prioritize uh, the zone two work just because there is more overlap between zone five work and your resistance training. And the question that remains is like, okay, but after how many zone two sessions have I checked that box enough that I should then add a zone five session, which is a bit of a nuanced thing. I think um, if I were to rank them, I'd want you to lift and then I'd want you to add at least two zone twos. And then if you had time, I'd want you to put that zone five on top of, of that schedule here. Yeah. Um, that's literally our order that we put into our programming. We're like, if you are time restricted, this is what's important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's helpful. I, I think that the, the conversation with Alyssa about, hey, is you know, you're gonna clear some of that lactate and then you're gonna be okay to do some zone two has made me feel better about doing it after a, an upper body day where just on average, I'm, not, I'm probably not getting up into zone five on like a cable press or something, you know, right. chest supported, you know. Um, after a leg day of like RDL Bulgarian split squat walking lunge or something, you know, like I'm, I feel more hesitant of, of where my lactate probably is to go into do a zone two. Um, I also just emotionally, it'd be really difficult. And I, and this yeah. idea that you, you know, some people are like, uh, in you go with the podcast with Peter T. I was like, yeah, you do your zone two first and you can go do weights. I'll tell you right now, this guy ain't never done that. Nobody does no. that. You're not doing that. I'm sorry. Like, there's just no shot. I'm going, I'm fucking dripping sweat. Uh, and I sweat a lot. So that's like a me thing, but like, it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm sec Like you said, I'm not physiologically exhausted. I just don't, I just don't want to go and well, then do weights after this. I think it's also like where your priorities lie. Fact, and so in, totally, Inigo yes. is an aerobic athlete. Correct. So he's like, why would I want to hurt my aerobic performance by doing weights first? Yeah. And we're like, well, we're hypertrophy athletes. Yeah. Why would we want to hurt our hypertrophy by doing cardio first? And so, yeah, you take a matter of priorities and, you know, put the one that you want to get better at first. It's like, if you have a weak muscle group, you train it first. You don't train your biceps after all the back work. Let's talk a little bit about modalities and I'll, and I'm going to, I'm going to launch a thought and you can, you can, you know, clean it up, throw it back is that if you're trying to do zone two, uh, and you're trying to do it the best that you can, and you have your, your modality agnostic and you're agnostic about needing to be outside, which are all real factors that we're going to take into account. It's probably best to do it on a machine in which you can set a speed and the machine dictates your rate of movement. And what I mean by that is like, a treadmill and a stairmaster, you set a speed or resistance or whatever, yeah. and you just get on, and that speed will maintain itself so long as you remain on the machine. Versus a bike, let's just say, where yeah, you can be in zone two on a bike, which by the way is awesome. You could totally do zone two on a bike, absolutely. Maybe more of an indoor bike, which we'll talk about. 
but you have to be the one who's actively maintaining that pace. If you lose focus, somebody starts talking to you and you pedal a little bit slower, you're gonna go out of zone two. Whereas like, if you're on a treadmill or a Stairmaster and somebody starts talking to you, as long as I'm still moving my feet and not falling off the machine, I can maintain that pace. So it's just like easier to maintain a consistent pace on a machine that's gonna do it for you. Um, that doesn't mean I, I, I'm not against doing it on a bike. Frankly, I think, I think it's important to give people that information, but layer on top of it, dude, if you hate the treadmill and you hate the Stairmaster, and you would be more likely and inclined to do it and do it consistently on a rower, which I have a couple of clients who are doing that. That's fantastic. You just need to pay attention a little bit more throughout. Like I, when I'm on, when I'm on the treadmill, I, I set the speed at which I know is going to ballpark me. And I do not look at the clock. I just cover the clock. I cover the speed. I don't look at it. You can't do that. If you're biking, can't do that. If you're rowing, you need to pay a little bit closer attention. So there's a practical downside there, but I would more highly rank what you enjoy doing and what you, what you will do because you can do zone two training you know, UV, I want to hear a little bit about, I want to hear whether or not that you're in agreement with that, but also you've been doing, you've been experimenting with like, can I circuit train my way into zone two? Um, has that been enjoyable? Has it been like a battle for you who I know is somebody who's like, wants to do it in a way that makes logical, physiological sense, but also is like, I want to make this fun and not suck. And so what have you, what have you yeah. felt with that? Yeah. So I fully agree that doing a treadmill or something where you can have the speed determined for you and then you can just cover the screen and not have to think about it a hundred percent definitely the best way um beyond something like that uh using a uh sorry um using a uh, a piece of equipment that you're efficient at is going to be the next most important thing and so for example using myself um i am an awful runner and I didn't realize how awful I was at running until I went out and I was like, I'm going to do zone two. And I started running at like a nine and a half minute mile, which felt excruciatingly slow. And within like a minute, my heart rate was in zone three or zone four. And I was like, oh, okay. So let me take a break. Let me do this again. Okay. So I need to run an 11 and a half minute mile if I'm going to stay in zone two. And an 11 and a half minute mile is, I mean literally like a shuffle like you're just kind of like barely lifting your feet up and it's 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 awful so i realized quickly that running is not a good choice for me that doesn't mean it's a bad choice for everybody um rowing a really bad choice for most people because most people are awful rowers i actually happen to be quite good at rowing um and i enjoy it so so rowing has been a really big one for me um, I'm actually in the process of trying to decide if I want to buy a rower or an air bike for my house to do my cardio on. I had one of those like in-house treadmills and it's just, I haven't really enjoyed it. It's been, it's broke and I had to fix it and order a new remote and like, it's just been a whole thing. But um, there's like another side of me that really wants to get the rower and the bike because I think they just complement each other so well with the push and the pull. And so before I even started doing circuits, which I'll get into in a second for my zone two, I was alternating between four minutes on the rower and four minutes on the air bike and four minutes on the rower and four minutes on the air bike, just staying in zone two the whole time. And it's really hard to just pull for 45 straight minutes. And it's also really hard to just push for 45 straight minutes. But the contrast of those two going back and forth was amazing. I mean, it was super, super good. Uh, and so I would love to have the opportunity to do that. Um, as far as my experience with the circuits, 
Um, it took a little bit of trial and error to figure it out. Um, I knew going into it that the most important thing was going to be picking movements where muscular fatigue is a complete non-issue. Um, and so the movements that I choose are, are mostly monostructural with like a slight flair of like some crossfit type stuff in there. But uh, like usually my circuits are air bike, rowing, shuttle runs, which are done extremely slow. Um, and then I've recently thrown in burpee box jumps, which quickly had to turn into burpee step ups because burpee box jumps were getting my heart rate too elevated. So quickly shifted to burpee step ups and that solved the problem. But when we're talking like burpee, it's not like throwing myself on the ground and jumping back up. Like I'm literally stepping down, I'm laying down and taking a breath on the ground and then I'm stepping back up and then doing a step up onto the box. So the whole burpee step up sequence is like 10 seconds per rep or something like that. Like I'm not doing CrossFit. Um, but what I've really, really enjoyed about the the circuit aspect of this is understanding what it feels like in different modalities. So here's what burpee step-ups feel like in zone two. Here's what burpee pull-ups feel like in zone two. Here's what GHD sit-ups feel like in zone two. And it's so it's, it's learning myself and my output, but it's also breaking up the monotony of having to sit on one piece of equipment the whole time. So if I can go like two minutes here, two minutes there, one minute here, one minute there, one minute there, and they're all next to each other and there's not a lot of like walking and letting my heart rate oscillate between movements and I just keep consistent breathing output. Um, the last two times I've done it, I've actually managed to keep my heart rate under 148 the entire time. And so 148 is starting to get into zone three for me. And that just happened in like the moment where I was doing the burpee box jump and I was like, oops. And then as soon as I switched to burpee step ups, it went back down into the 130s. Um, so I think it's just a cool exploration process to learn your body, especially for me coming from a CrossFit background where everything was go, go, go and like red line by the end and all that stuff. Realizing that you can use these or I, I can use these movements somewhat effectively and still remain in zone two, understanding that it's not quite as as dialed in as you would want to be if your goal is optimizing mitochondrial response and all that yep i think that there will there is there's one conversation of like how to do it and how to like track the metrics and how to assess progress over time and i think that i'm i will go so deep into that and i'm in the midst of it but at the end of the day what's important is and I talked about this a little bit on Instagram this week about having goals, like having these specific goals that you're shooting for, like whether you're trying to watch your zone two uh, uh, watts go up or the speed that you're going or, or your your split or whatever, like your 5K time, whatever. Like those are all cool goals because they can help be a mirror that you are progressing. But realistically, it's the doing of the zone two that matters the most. And I and I and there's just a small difference there because I know that like, if I if I never tested my lactate again and I never learned more about the talk test and I never figured out more about this stuff and I just got on and I did somewhere between 130 beats per minute and 145 beats per minute-ish and I did that for 100 
to 200 minutes a week that like that's the point the point is doing that and for me and for others I think we were coming from a place of like having something to track and having an understanding of it and being able to see the progression like those are all tools to help me continue doing the thing um and I think that I just want to caution people getting not that I think we've exacerbated people's anxiety about how particular we have to be I think it's important to have these tools and these metrics and, and proxies and stuff but the end of the day, like getting on and putting in the hours of not very hard work sustainably in a steady state fashion, that's that's the point. The point is to do that. And yeah, we, we're going to use the data and we're going to triangulate these proxies. We're trying to get a little bit more concise and accurate with what the zone two is and all that stuff. But man, it is an amount, like it all comes back to like motivating you to actually do the thing. And so I, I just like, mm-hmm. there's going to come a point in my life where I'm like, I got all the stuff that I need to get from the data. And now I know to just that I have to do this consistently because I want to be healthy. And so, uh, I, you know, I'm motivated by the data. I love the, I love everything we're talking about now. I find it fucking fascinating. Um, very excited. Um, but I also know that like, I could probably get 99% of the benefits that I'll ever get by like ballparking a heart rate and putting in the freaking time and making sure that it's not too difficult. Um, I want to, I want to, I want to spit out some one thing, interesting thing that I have found and see if you've felt this as well. And so I'm, I think we're all, we are all, you know, the industry is like pretty much in agreement that like using cardio as a primary tool to create a caloric deficit uh, or like reduce calories or whatever it is, just like just like get into a deficit uh, is probably not the best plan. We see in the research that if you just have an exercise intervention, people don't lose weight. And we, I see that pretty much with clients too, where it's like, yeah, we're not going to touch your nutrition at all. We're just going to have you get 3,000 more steps or something. Like, It's not really the best plan. And what we see sometimes, one of the hypotheses, there's a hypothesis for energy comp- like compensation. There's also a hypothesis of, of, of comp- like compensatory caloric intake via an increase in hunger. And what I found and what I was really trying to think about was, and what I was nervous about, frankly, was what is this cardio going to make me hungrier? And how am I going to manage that? And I think that before I say what I'm going to say, it's individual, totally. It's also, you know, are you training at the right intensity? Because I think the higher intensity very generally would correlate with more of a hunger response, generally. But I have experienced no additional hunger. And I have, and I lost weight. And I know that people don't want to hear this spontaneous weight loss. Like nobody, like, okay, I get it. I lost like <laughs> seven pounds in the first couple of months doing this cardio because I was increasing the calories and I wasn't experiencing that, at least net compensation, like net full on net compensation. I was net burning calories based on the calories I was burning and the hunger I was not, it was not being replaced with. Have you, I know you don't track, which is a great context for this because I'm not tracking either. And so I'm, I am not shooting for a number. I'm shooting for a satisfaction level on a daily basis. And so have you experienced, yeah, I, I got to eat more, you know, doing all this cardio. Like I, I guess maybe a little bit, but I, it's not a full compens- like compensatory hunger response where I just eat back all those calories when I'm left to my own devices. Have you experienced that in any way? Uh, it's a complicated question, and it's actually one of the, I think, most complicated parts of this new inclusion of Zone 2 and Zone 5 work into protocols that I write is people dieting, being in a caloric deficit, and wondering what they should do with their cardio as a result of being in a deficit. And so I'm working through a lot of that right now. And I have some kind of initial thoughts and like a current set of recommendations. Um, but 
specifically the way that it's happened with me, given that I'm not tracking and stuff, I don't think I've noticed acute increase in hunger. Um, much like you said, like I don't finish a zone two session and then like three hours later, I'm more ravenous than I would have been had I, had I not done it. Um, but I'm also consciously trying to eat to satisfaction and I don't follow a meal plan. So it's not like I can be like, well, every day I eat these meals and now I'm adding in an extra meal. It's not like as clear. it's actually, yeah. it's not, yeah, it's ambiguous. It's very ambiguous. Um, I also haven't weighed myself since I've been out here in San Diego. So I have no idea if I'm gaining or losing weight. Um, I know that I find myself much more open to allowing myself more indulgent food choices. And I don't think I'm gaining weight from that, but then you could easily say, well, I'm eating more calories, which means I'm fueling the cardio and, and I'm not gaining weight, but I also am not losing weight. Um, but it's definitely, it's gone in kind of waves. Like there'll be periods of time where I feel more indulgent and I do allow myself to just eat more. And I don't think it's related to the cardio. I find these waves, you know, have been, uh, common in my life for, for decades. And so, uh, like if I had to guess, I think I've probably lost like a little bit of weight being out here, but I don't think it's like seven pounds. Like you said, it'll be interesting going back and, and seeing, uh, what the scale has to say, but I'm mostly just trying to fuel the cardio to keep myself close to maintenance because that is my recommendation. When people talk about being in a deficit and doing cardio, I generally say that, hey, we need to fuel this additional energy utilization. If like, even if we don't think that, you know, you you go out and you, the machine says you burn 400 calories and we know that because of energy compensation in a deficit, you're probably burning 250 or something like that. But I usually say, if you're going to continue doing the cardio, you need to fuel it. So you can't go into your deficit thinking that, you know, you're usually would start at 1800 calories and and uh now you you can't you can't essentially always start at the same number you always started at if you're now doing cardio and you weren't doing cardio before um and so for that reason like i've decided not to do my annual cut this year because i want the cardio adaptations to be the priority and they can't be the priority if i'm not fueling them um so if i lose weight which i may be doing but <laughs> that'd be it'd be unpurposeful you oh, know yeah. to to go back to that again. Yeah. I find that, again, I'm going to be very clear, not that you made this assumption, but that was not in my intent, and I was not happy right. that that happened. Uh, not that I'm like, you know, whatever, I'm just, I, I fixed it, I, I'm eating more. Um, but I think it's important. I know that there's there, every, like, a nuanced answer is always going to be technically more accurate, but I think that it would behoove people to, if you're going to be, like binary about this to, to just eliminate the caloric burn benefit from these sessions as a thing that you think about. It's, and it's kind of what you're saying of like, Hey man, like we're not, we're not using this as a tool to be in a deficit. Yeah. There's a weight maintenance benefit here, probably on the net from a hunger regulation and from calorie burn perspective, but it, it would behoove you to just forget about that for a second yeah. and for, to do it for other reasons. It's, it's unlikely that you'll sustain the type of long-term consistency with this sort of habit, if your goal is every time you're on the treadmill, you're like, another calorie burn, another calorie burn, another calorie burn. It's like, you gotta be, gotta latch on to like long-term cardiovascular benefits. Like, I don't wanna die early. Like, I wanna be fit. I don't wanna get fatigued climbing up the stairs. Um, and so, yeah, I'm with you on that. I was, 
I was interested because I, I used to, you know, I'm, I'm just recovering from, from really rough ankle injury and I haven't played soccer. And that was really my, where my zone five was coming from. Um, cool story. I did, I had my first game this week in 11 months and, and I, you know, I'm not hundred percent, but it felt fucking amazing to get back out there. And I love that it will be my ability to do, it's definitely going to be a mixed zonal activity, right? It's not like a direct zone five work, but that, that will be where I get my zone five because there's yep. periods of max effort and I'm, and I'm good with that. Um, what I was going to say was that when I started playing a lot of soccer, I was playing like four times a week the last year and I got real hungry. I was eating, I was nonstop yeah. and, and, and just to keep up. And so I didn't experience that with the zone two, the only difference potentially being just the level of intensity. And so that's just, a, and yeah. I, and I don't want to like preempt anybody that that's going to be their experience. It might not be, but that is something that I do find like that it tracks with what I would have expected that I'd be less, I'd have less of a hunger response at a lower intensity. I, I, I'm, I'm, I want to, uh, we were like an hour and 15 in here. I want to know if there's anything specifically on zone two that you would like us to talk about before I have one question that I think will tangent us, not off track at all, but I think a little bit nerdier, a little bit speculative, a little bit maybe like some people will stop listening when I ask maybe. Uh, maybe not, we'll see. <laughs> I love those questions. Yeah. Um, first off, really cool that you're back to playing soccer. I know that that's been a huge burden for you over Thanks, the last man. year. I've already gone through and recovered from a, a foot issue that whole yeah. time. And, and, you, hammy, right? and you're still like, yeah, and you're still yeah, yeah, yeah. battling yeah, yeah, the same yeah, problem. Yeah. Um, so the last thing I think I would say on zone two is uh, you alluded to it earlier before we changed direction, but the idea of like progressive overload yeah, on yeah, zone yeah. two or lack thereof. Let's do it. And so you said, you know, the most important thing is just finding that heart rate zone and then just doing the work. And I agree with that. And so I think when we talk about progressive overload in weights, it's often assumed that progressive overload is, you know, the idea of adding a rep or adding weight or in some way improving your performance week to week or meso to meso or whatever. But we've also discussed on this show and elsewhere, the idea of the the philosophical approach to progressive overload in which you don't really force adaptation. You just kind of wait to notice adaptation. And then you're like, oh, these weights are too light. I should probably increase the weight so that it is still challenging. And so I think the same principle should be applied to our zone two work in that we're not purposefully trying to do more watts or do more work or increase our heart rate or anything like that. But if we're doing the same work we were doing before, and you notice that your heart rate is no longer in zone two, then now you have to change how hard you're working so that your heart rate can get back to zone two again. And so it's kind of like this noticing and waiting game where you're not forcing it. You're just noticing it happening and then adjusting. So, so I'm, I'm on board with that. And I laugh because there's a big confounding variable that I'm not as concerned with cardiovascular performance. And so I think that I'm very comfortable being reactive uh, to my cardiovascular adaptations and, and, and feel more of a push to be proactive, not forcing more weight, but like I have a progression model I follow for my training. My progression model that we just, I mean, the one that you just said for cardio is way more reactionary, less proactive. Yeah. And, I, and, I'm, yeah. and I agree with that. And, and, and the way that I've experienced this, and maybe this helps others, is I have a, an incline and speed on my treadmill that after plenty of guess and check guys, by the way, this is not something that you figure out on day one. It took me maybe 10 workouts to like really figure out, hone in, 10 incline, three point something on the treadmill. That gets me in the ballpark for heart rate. That gets me in the ballpark of all those other proxies. 
And the other day I got on and I did that workout. I think it was like 3.1. P.S. Just hold my hand up. I have, I'm, I'm, I'm like one stone's throw away from like metabolic syndrome when it comes to cardiovascular fitness. Like I just from like a Watts per kilo, like all your benchmarks, like I'm not very cardiovascularly fit. And that's also been a motivating factor is like I've played sports at non-professionally, but fairly, uh, fairly competitive levels in my life. And I have been the least cardiovascular fit person on every single team I've ever been on. And not just by a little bit, it's been like a joke. And, and the second actually thing that I want to mention is I'm curious where asthma comes into this because I want, I wonder about my respiration and is the asthma a confounding variable? We'll cover that another time. But how, I've, how I've experienced this is I went on the treadmill the other day to do my workout and I put on 3.1, 10 miles an hour and I started going and what I recommend to people is when you're trying to assess if you're in zone two or whatever, don't, don't do it like in the middle of the workout. Like just do the whole workout and then see, because sometimes you, you want to watch the heart rate climb and you think it's going to overshoot and it levels off. Or sometimes you think that it's leveled off and it climbs again. So don't be like, oh, I'm 10 minutes in. Let me check. I'm 15 minutes in. Let me check. Just fucking do the workout. And if it, if it wasn't hard enough, then you can just be, all right, I did 3.1, 10 mile, 10 incline. Let me go up a little bit next time. That's my recommendation. You could, you could in the, I, I got into this like uh, within, the, within the workout changing shit all the time and I realized just, just let it play out and see what happens. Uh, and so whatever, I got on my workout, I got on my treadmill the other day and I did the workout that normally brings my heart rate up until like 137 to 140 and I was, I was at like 130 to 132 and it felt subjectively easier. And I don't know if that will just be, oh, I'm now fitter. Uh, there are acute variables that maybe went into that, but but that's sort of the, what we're talking about in terms of reactionary, where I'm mentally logging, oh, that was easier this time. Maybe now because I've experienced that, it's like going into the gym and, and doing the 10-pound weights that you always do, and then being like, oh, that felt easier this time. I'll do you know 15 pounds next time. And so that's kind of that reactionary approach that I think is gonna work just fine because I'm not in a rush to get maximum cardio adaptations. I'm I'm okay with that workout being just under optimal so that I could learn from it for the future. Um, and so that would be my recommendation is just to not try and mess with that stuff like while you're doing it to try and just do the full workout, see how it goes, make an adjustment. Um, because I've I've made both errors of like b- bumping it up too quickly and then and, or, or lowering it down too quickly. Um, yeah, anything else on the progressive overload? I guess if you were gonna try and watch something improve, you can do a couple of things and you can, you can again, spit it up, put, throw it back for me is, which is like a weird, creepy, like mother bird. I'm thinking of like a mother bird, like regurgitating food. That's what I just asked you to do with my argument. But um, is like, you could, you can increase the amount of work that you're doing either by having a Watts metric, which your treadmill or bike might have, or just by knowing the speed. And so I'm like, I'm, I'll can go off on a whole rant on the Watts thing with this Peloton treadmill, which we talked about a little bit, but, but I'm, I know that, 10 incline 3.1 miles per hour is where I've been for zone two. And I know that when I'm that in six months and a year, I might be doing four miles an hour. To, and so I can just look at the speed. I don't need to get, I just want to track one thing, see it over time. So that would be one thing where it's like, you're doing more work at a given heart rate, let's say, or while you, while the proxies check out that you're in zone two, you're doing more work, yeah. you're going faster, or you're doing a workout you've previously done and it feels easier. Those would be the two things that I would try and, you know, kind of combine together. Agreed, no argument. Cool. The question that I have is definitely one that people, it's definitely within a context that people, so people are, there's a lot of this discussion amongst bodybuilders right now, even like Revive Stronger and these guys of like, doing the zone two will let you recover faster uh, between sets, let's say. You might need less rest. 
And it can increase work capacity and it can let you do more volume because you can recover from more. There's a third argument. I'll say that those first two are, I'm, I, I will contest a tiny bit or at least hypothetically. The third argument is that when you do exercises, like let's say walking lunges, which is probably the most cardiovascular hypertrophy exercise that exists. Um, it's, it's in the top tier of like most likely to be potentially limited by cardiovascular system that if you have a better cardiovascular system, then that move now becomes whatever. It becomes less likely to be limited by cardiovascular system because you have a better one. That I think might be beneficial. That I think it might be, I don't know if I have a big, I can make a big stink about confirming that. I would say that if you, I, w- I would have a, a, some other arguments as to like, okay, well you could just do different exercises and not worry about it. My, my question to you is this idea that getting a better zone two, getting a better cardiovascular fitness, recovering better, increasing work capacity, all somewhat synonymous. Do we, and this is goes back to an, a, the Mike Isertel Coach Cast podcast on, on, on periodization. We're like, do we know that that's good? Like, am I, and I know neither of us know this for sure, but I'm just wondering if you have a hunch that are we changing our physiology to a more maybe AMPK dominant, more, mm-hmm. to, I mean, the whole point of zone two is that you are getting type one muscle fiber adaptations. I mean, the right. the VT1, this threshold where you go into zone three is quite literally when you go from working mostly type one fibers to mostly type two fibers. And, you know, being quote type two dominant uh, is by all accounts a better thing for resistance training. And so getting these, focusing very much on what is intentionally type one fiber adaptations, like, okay, I can recover from more work, maybe do more work, higher work capacity, all this stuff. But like, is that coming, like, is this a net neutral or am I getting better hypertrophy gains? Or have I changed my physiology in a way that I'm a worse machine for hypertrophy adaptations? Do you have a hunch? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, So personally, I will be able to find at least a little bit of data about this because when I did this one arm training experiment, I had a DEXA done in August. Uh, and I started the one arm training experiment like four or five weeks later. So I have a DEXA coming up when I finished my one arm training experiment. And it is just so fortuitous that when I went gung ho super deep into all, all this cardio was about the exact same time that I had that first DEXA done. And so now we'll be able to do another DEXA. And I would love if my body weight is the same as it was when I did the first DEXA so that I can see potentially if there has been some transition to more type one muscle fibers, which you would think, like you said, would occur because it is literally how you get better at zone two cardio is to have more type one muscle fibers. Um, But then on the other side of the argument is like, yo, if my body weight is the same, do we just assume that because I'm doing cardio that I lost muscle? Like, what is the muscle being replaced with? Am I getting more body fat because I'm doing more cardio? Or like, what is it? You know what I mean? Um, so it's an extremely interesting question. Um, I also think another potential way of looking at this is the idea that the amount of volume that you need or could optimize your your hypertrophy changes over the course of your life and much of what changes how much volume you do is dependent upon what you can recover from at different stages of your life and so when i was in college i could drink 15 beers stay up till 2 a.m sleep till 6 a.m go to class 
and then have a really solid training session where I progressed at 9 a.m. And why could I do that? Because my testosterone was high, my stress was low, like all of these, the milieu that goes into recovery was super strong at that point in my life that I could get away with all the shitty behavior and uh, suboptimal behavior. And now I train with significantly less volume than I did in college. And it's because I'm a dad and I have a job and blah, 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 all the way down the line. Poor me. I train with less volume now. Would the increase in aerobic capacity more optimize our recovery through better mitochondrial function that we can, in fact, get more from more volume? Um, which doesn't exactly answer the question of is too much work capacity a bad thing or not, but it's another avenue of looking at it as a means of facilitating recovery. The way the way that the way that it, I think some things that I feel like I'm not certain on, but like that I'm starting to like think about is I think if you're a not very fit person cardiovascular, like if you're like just I'm not fit at all, like it's just I'm I'm maybe a metabolic syndrome or type two diabetes or just generally I'm sedentary. I think that from that point to moderately fit, increase in cardiovascular adaptations, increase in work capacity. I think that that's probably a net positive on, on all adaptations. Like just mm -hmm. the, the amount of hypertrophy that you could do is so low without any of those adaptations that it's a net positive. If you're somebody who can do and recover from a, a, a moderate amount of volume, I know we're taking a lot of leaps with generalizations here. I'm not, I'm just, I hear this every day of like, oh, the zone two is great. You can recover from more work. The two things I think about when someone says that is one, you'd actually have to do the more work that, to get the benefit. So if someone's like, you can recover from more work and then you just keep doing the same program, like what are you, you're not capitalizing on that extra work capacity. So right. I'm doing this zone two. Now I have to work out longer to get these more benefits, maybe. So whatever, I'm not so anti that, but I just think people are like, oh, you can, you can, you can, you can do more work. You'd have to do that more work to capitalize from it if that benefit existed. And the second thing is like, I just, I'm just not sure that, like if you tell me that you, that the best uh, the way to get better at hypertrophy is to have like you know more type two dominance, I'm thinking of a stupid car analogy of like being a Dodge Charger or some I don't know some I'm not a car person but like some real muscle car like diesel engine eight miles to the gallon right, and then you do something to that car that it can get seventy miles to the gallon. Like my bet is that you've also done things that have made it, its top end power less good. Yeah. And, and so I, I don't, I do, I'm not sure. And, and to be honest, the, the, like, I don't think it really practically matters because I think people aren't turning into, um, high level endurance athletes. So we're, we're not talking about people going from like having Jay Cutler's genetics to being an elite marathon runner. I know we're talking about it within context where I think doing the zone two is such a net benefit. It's like a no brainer. I'm not on this thing of like, don't do the zone two because you're going to get worse hypertrophy adaptations. That's not the case. But like, I just am not sure that I can, that I can keep a straight face. Now, the one benefit I would say is, is being tired cardiovascularly in the lift fucking sucks. And so yeah. I've noticed just like more enjoyment when I do Bulgarian split squats. I texted Jenna the other day. I've been in places in my life where I lay down on the floor for three to five minutes between legs, yeah. between legs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. at a place right now where I could do maybe 
90 seconds to two minutes between legs. I know that sounds crazy for people. Some people are like, oh, right leg, left leg, 30 seconds, you know? But yeah. I've noticed that that has made the exercise and everything more enjoyable and more comfortable. But none of that speaks to like better adaptations. And so I just, I'm just reserving my, on the list of reasons, it's almost like when people talk about the list of reasons to build more muscle, every single time someone's like, you burn more calories. And I'm like, there's so many reasons to build muscle, but like, unless we're talking about over the lifespan, it's probably not a big needle mover. And with this, yeah. people are like, you can recover from more work. I'm like, one, I don't know if that means better hypertrophy. And two, if it did, you'd actually have to do more work to benefit from that. If nothing else, you're getting better cardiovascular fitness. It's not fucking... It's not fucking up your lifting. You can still get incredibly close to your genetic potential. You can get mega jacked, you know, all of the good things. I don't want to take away from it, but I'm just, I reserve that like, are we sure about that? You know, and I and I would kill to have Kaz and Mike talk about this because this comes down to the root of what I would say is Mike's disagreement with Kaz's deload periodization model mm -hmm. of occasionally doing systemic training and MPK training and all this stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm just not. I'm just not. I'm just not sure about whether or not that's a good. That's like that's actually getting yeah. you better hype. This idea that the zone two is going to get you better gains is something I think is reserved for really non-fit people. That I think it's true, but I think beyond that, it's probably a net neutral. And, and I'd rather just focus mm -hmm. on the other benefits, in my opinion. So, what would you say if you do your Bulgarian split squats and there's one version of you that needs? like the set is so taxing that you need three to five minutes between legs where you're like huffing and puffing and laying on the ground or the version of you that basically does the exact same weight and the same RIR and everything. And now you can rest 90 seconds to two minutes and do the same thing on the other leg. If you don't increase volume, you just do the same volume. Wouldn't you still think that it would be better to be the person that can recover in two minutes and do your set than the person that is so fatigued and so sympathetic after a set that you have to lay on the ground and pant just to get up and do another set. I would, I would agree 100% wholeheartedly, but if you could create a physiological argument that would say that, that one of those two people will receive a greater hypertrophy adaptation then there's a bodybuilder out there whose life's goal is to be as big as possible who would disagree. Now, I wouldn't because I think that is, we don't even know that to be true and I'm yeah. concerned with way other things than that. The count, the, the, the real question, not the real question, but a follow-up would be what about the person who uh, does one extra set and net spends the same time in the gym but has now done right. a, a third set where I only did two sets in the other equation because I'm resting so freaking long. Which yeah. of those two people gets better gains? I don't. I don't know. And 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 I'll throw one more thing: is that like what we do know is that repetition from a skill development and coordination standpoint is really important. And so, if you're a power lifter or an Olympic weightlifter or you're an athlete, that that there is probably an element of okay, I can get more reps in under less fatigue. And I can build my these neural pathways and movement patterns and neural efficiency. And I can do those things because I'm at any given moment under less fatigue. And I can get more reps under less fatigue. And I can build these better technique, better movement patterns, better neuro neurological efficiency. This like skill development aspect, I think is, I actually think that that's huge, totally. Um, Viata made that, Alex Viata made that point on, a power, on, on Jordan's podcast where he's like, with power lifters, I'm not sure that they're getting better gains, but they're getting more reps of the big lifts. And maybe from a neurological perspective, that's more practice. Mm. And maybe that practice from a strength and performance outcome or an athletic outcome, maybe I think that just we have a we have a way 
more, I would say more likelihood of, I, if I had to bet, I'd say that the outcomes in terms of those adaptations are, I'd bet they're positive because the idea of doing more work, regardless of like what's happened physiologically to get you to the point where you could do more work, I think is is by itself beneficial. Doing more reps of snatches, doing more mm-hmm. reps of, you know, your your squat technique, doing more reps of something that's neurologically complex of which skill and coordination development is important. I think that that's probably huge because those things are also so, it's so dependent to fatigue level. Like you learn your, your motor patterns. Like if you're trying to hone motor patterns, you want to do that under less fatigue. And so you're better cardiovascular fitness at any given point you'd be under less fatigue i gotta run in a minute i would have fucking yeah. i could go down that rabbit hole a ton um but but to be honest with you we're doing i knew it's just a ton of speculation neither of us i think are like there's just too many hypotheticals and i think at the end of the day i didn't want to put a damper on zone two i fucking love it i think everyone should do it i'm hyped you know it's amazing for your heart it's it it, it will make maybe walking lunges suck less without i think a big deficit to your fucking gains from it uh, and I highly yeah. recommend it, and I know you do too. A- anything you want to leave people with before we before I let you go here? No, I mean we're just not like if you're you're speaking to where optimal meets practical, and so most of the people listening to your podcast are not the one percent trying to maximize the last you know percentage point totally. of hypertrophy, and so you know if you're just sitting in that like hey I just want to be fit and muscular and look good and feel good and everything, there's really just no reason not to do some zone two work. Agreed. Agreed. Um, Things that things that I wanted to say to you that maybe we'll talk on off air. My my again, we're if you listen, if you stuck around for the hour and a half podcast, I fucking love you. Thanks for listening. Uh, the jib jab that will happen now is like you could you could bounce if you want to. But um, uh, the lactate, I've been testing my lactate right after every yeah. single session, and um, you and I were talking about how like my first impression was that it wasn't adding up to what I expected it to. It was I felt like I was working my ass off, and I'm like, man, I'm probably in zone three. And then lactate was like one point five. And, um, I just, the more I've learned about that lactate that, that just like, I think I just need more reps with it in terms of like, you know, when you take your blood pressure, I don't know if you've ever done like daily blood pressure readings. Like I do it every day. Yeah. uh, So so you can, I have not, but I've heard that like, I'm not saying it's not accurate, but sometimes it can, you can get like the, like you really need to like get a lot of readings to triangulate a trend versus like just like a weighing in where you wouldn't hang your hat emotionally on any single weigh in is that uh something you've experienced with blood pressure yeah i do 3 yeah, um and exactly. i usually do one right when i sit down and knowing that it's going to be a little bit higher just because i've been up and moving around yeah. and then by the time i get to the second and third readings they're much more similar than the first reading and so i kind of just take an average of the 3 that 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 makes that makes sense, and that's like if it wasn't so fucking expensive for the strips, I would do three too. But it's like crazy yeah. expensive to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, that makes sense. It's it's been cool, but like you know, you you you've listened to the Tia podcast where they talk about it a little bit. You have to like wash your hands and like really thoroughly yeah. because of how like lactate like settles on the skin or whatever. Um, so I have Jenna bring me like a hot towel with warm, moist towel with soap then another warm, moist towel with no soap and then like a dry towel. And I'm fucking sitting there scrubbing while I'm doing it. And like, there's some confounding variables of like, while I'm doing that, my heart rate comes up a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And so for then sure. I like let it come down a little bit. And so I've just decided that like, it's just imperfect enough that if I get enough of the data, I can wash out some of those. And so I'm yeah. reserving my like lactate conclusions after I have like 50 of them. Um, and so that's something that I'm sure we'll talk about, but I'm going to let you go. You want to drop a line. You want to tell more people to leave my group, come to Paragon. That's totally cool. No problem. (laughs) Don't do that. Jordan's (laughs) Jordan's program smashes. We learn a lot from you guys. 
Um, yeah, so I'm basically at Brian Borstein on Instagram, uh, Paragon Training Methods, Evolve Training Systems, and uh, Hypertrophy and other zone two and five cardio topics, kind of all sorts of things on my podcast, Eat, Train, Prosper. So um, yeah, come check us out. Cool, man. Thanks for coming. We'll, uh, we'll chat in a bit. Thanks, bro. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.